Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can now sign up to the Manjeet Minhas podcast newsletter to stay up to date with all of the most recent news about the show. You can find that by going to manjeetminhaspodcast.influicity.com. You can find that link in the description of this episode. You're listening to an Influicity podcast. You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Each episode, I sit down with a different business expert to hear about their successes, their failures, and some lessons on how to become better entrepreneurs. Starting a business is a tough job for anyone. Luckily, there are often resources and services available to help us get started and scale. This brings me to my guest today, Michael Denham. He is the CEO of Business Development Bank of Canada, also known as BDC, which offers help to entrepreneurs and small businesses. Whether it's through guidance or financial advice, BDC works to navigate entrepreneurs through their early stages of business. Michael, thank you for coming on the show today. Let's start with where Michael Denham came from. Where were you born and raised and schooling and your family? Sure. Do you mind? Can I tell a story about you just before I go there? Because we'll get we'll get to this in my role. But part of um, uh, what's important about my role is to um, inspire um, people to become entrepreneurs. And there's so much of what you do. Uh, this podcast, your presence, you know, your speaking engagements, um, your Dragon's Den, which is out there to inspire people to kind of take risks and start on new careers. And last time we saw each other was part of um, BDC Small Business Week celebration. Right. And I, uh, I was touring the country, giving various kind of speeches and talks to groups around the country. The room was always full. Then they got to Surrey, BC. And um, I looked around and there were literally three or four times the number of people who normally show up. And I said, hey, oh, I know why. Manjeet's here. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. <laughs> you're the star of the show. You inspired a whole group of, um, of uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs-to-be from the Vancouver area. And uh, it's uh, you play what you do is important, and you play a big role in inspiring folks. Just wanted to thank you and acknowledge that before we start. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a fun part of what I I get to do now with my public role um, that I I really never um, have completely grasped the impact of, and I think for a variety of reasons, I try to be me um, with all my flaws included, and I think that's that's part of the reality of being an entrepreneur. That none of us are perfect, and if somebody can see a little bit um, of themselves in in my journey, I I I I hope to inspire them. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Back to you. Back to me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so where was Michael born? Yeah, so born in born in Toronto, the northern northern part of the um, the city. What was then um, a, a kind of suburb in the middle of a horse field. What is now almost downtown. Uh, oh, okay. And um, my folks were um, came to Canada from uh, England after they got married in the early fifties for what was supposed to be a two or three year stay in Canada. And uh-huh. um, they're kind of proud Canadians to this day. Um, and high school in uh, Toronto, uh, went to university and grad school in the States and UK, and then came back to start my career after that. Oh, nice to know you came back to Canada. I think you went to the London School of Economics, if I remember correct. Oh, that's right. Princeton first and LSE. And uh, it was both, you know, the, 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 I had a better job offer to come back to Toronto versus New York. Um, but um, my father, you know, um, new immigrant story, right? Um, he was just um, such an arch, um, uh, a lover of our country and all of its virtues, and that stuck on me. So uh, it made it a relatively easy choice to come back and make my life here. And after being in the U.S. and in England, you know, lots of pros, of course, and lots of 
smart minds and exciting places to be, both of those places. What drew you back to Canada? Other than a job offer, you know, at that, at that age, you're, you're, the world is kind of your oyster and you kind of want to get out of Canada. A lot of people feel when they're at that age to get new experiences or, you know, um, be in those happening cities. Uh, what drew you back to want to come back to Canada? It wasn't a, uh, like an explicit kind of national decision, come back to Canada. It was, um, this was uh, the late uh, 80s. And uh, Canada was going through a bit of a wobbly stretch as we as we kind of transform our economy from from manufacturing to more of a services base. So it wasn't though the economy was particularly buoyant, uh, but um, there was a lot going on. And um, uh, again, I knew that um, uh, coming to start a career in Toronto would still connect me to international opportunities all over the world because it's such an international hub. And it, it was just a relatively easy decision. And so what values do you think that you were brought up and raised with that have kind of helped you? through your career because you, like you said, you mentioned um, you were at McKinsey, um, you were, you know, um, with Aquaterra, you were with Bombardier and had some really senior roles, CEO, senior vice president with some very large companies in some different industries also. So your, your background, your education, your experience, what led you into taking on those, those big roles? So what was um, interesting, you may have done one of these things too, uh, mentioning the day, but when I was leaving university, I did one of those hurdy generation, um, you know, psychometric or psychological assessments, where they're trying to kind of compare your, your intrinsics and your values to various career options. And I did this with two or three kind of PhDs who are expert in the field. And after uh, all the surveys, all the information, they sat me down and gave me the, the diagnostic. And they said, there were two, two careers you seem well matched up for. Uh, the first is joining the clergy. Um, but I wasn't particularly religious, so that didn't work. Um, and the second was becoming a consultant. And I guess what they both have in common is a desire to, um, uh, to kind of help others, um, uh, which obviously is what being a clergyman is all about. But most good consultants there, they do it for a reason. And the reason is to help the clients and individuals they're working with become better at what they do. Um, and that's probably what drove me into um, McKinsey for 14 years. Then I came back to Accenture later in, the, in that, type of, um, that type of mode. But then the variety point you made, I think, was more a function of, and you probably experienced this as well, just when you go through um, variety means challenge and just learning new things, new industries, new people, new ways of working. uh, And that was a real source of motivation for me. Uh, And that's when you're at a consulting firm, you're changing from clients in in telecommunications to cement, to pulp and paper, to financial services. And you just kind of get a bit hooked on the challenge of um, what that represents. And that's part of what's kind of taken me into different uh, different industries and different career directions. Yeah, I did those tests. Um, I wasn't told I should go into the clergy. I was told I should become a doctor. Little did they know that I couldn't stand the sight of blood. Still yeah, can't. That's right. <laughs> Definitely. My, my mom was quite excited when she saw that. That's right. It wasn't one of those psychological questions. Do you, do you like the sight of blood? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it should have been a, a very quick prerequisite. But um, yeah, definitely not for me. Engineering was a little more uh, one plus one equals two for me that I could, that I could handle. And definitely no sight of uh, guts or blood. Um, yeah, interesting, definitely. And so then you were um, led to uh, BDC, and and how did that opportunity come about? And and uh, the banking or financial services industry. So what? What? Um, so I'd spent again McKinsey, Bombardier, Accenture. I'd spent my whole working life up till um, 2015 or so. 
uh, basically working in or consulting to kind of really large kind of fortune fortune 500 size companies mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the work i was doing was like restructuring and cost cutting and process redesign reorganization um, which becomes a little bit dispiriting after a while and then as part of my um um, while I was at Accenture, I uh, was approached and joined a board of an organization you, you'd know well called Futurepreneur, uh, which yeah. basically provides money and uh, advice and mentorship to young entrepreneurs. And that just opened my eyes to the um, this part of our economy, which I hadn't, hadn't really lived in or been part of until then. And it got me really excited about not just the companies I got to see and the energy of the of the young entrepreneurs, but about the prospects for the country. Because um, this is where this is where the action happens, right? This is where the people uh, uh, the people are employed. This is where the GDP comes from, and that just led me to um, want to find a way to um, combine my skill set, which was large corporate, with this part of the Canadian economy, which is entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. Uh, and the BDC actually is a perfect marriage of those two things. So that was the the logic that drove me towards the BDC. I can imagine there was lots of challenges um, that obviously excited you, uh, as you mentioned, into getting into a new role. But with BDC, of course, you know, um, I don't know how many people know the history of BDC, um, but it started in, in 1944 and it was called um, IDB, Industrial Development Bank, um, which is an arm of the Bank of Canada initially. And so um, that, the, you know, that, of course, has um, a great pros and cons always. And I as I was doing a lot of research um, on it, I was really excited to find out that during the first years, the bank's main role was to help small industrial enterprises convert from military production to peacetime operations after the Second World War. And that's interesting to me for a variety of reasons, because the government of, of Canada, um, you know, recognized that there needed to be this shift and that the businesses needed support in creating that shift. Kind of um, a lot of the parallels that we're seeing right now in the pandemic, small businesses especially have been hit really hard and have to, um, you know, pivot, have to reinvent themselves in some sort of way in order to still um, not only be relevant, but in order to service the needs of Canadians. Canadians and and the whole world. And then, of course, um, you know, it changed to the Business Development uh, Bank of Canada and and its reputation changed. Of course, before that, you know, it had this interesting reputation of lender of last resort. And my dad was telling me about that when he, you know, read and knew about BDC um, before when he came to this country in the 70s. And and that's when that kind of happened in the mid 70s. Um, and, And I love that it changed its special focus and, and, and focused now on the needs of small and medium-sized businesses in the in the mid-70s before it was not only fashionable to do so by, um, you know, the big banks, but before people were actually realizing how big that portion of the economy could become and was becoming and what a force those entrepreneurs were, but understanding that they also needed help and that they needed services to understand all that entails being an entrepreneur, um, and especially that financial piece, and that the metrics need to be a little bit different for small businesses, uh, which, you know, um, don't usually checkmark all the boxes, I guess, that that bigger um, institutions, lending institutions are looking for. And so coming into an organization that had so much history and so much change along the way, um, how did you feel that, what did you feel that you wanted to bring uh, to BDC? Well, that's a very good, very good summary of the key, um, the key inflection points uh, in our history. 
And so it's interesting. 1995 was when we became the, as you say, reborn as the BDC. And up until then, um, the lender of last resort point, as an entrepreneur, you needed to come to us with a piece of paper signed by two banks, say, where those banks say they're not going to lend you any money in order to qualify for a BDC loan. Uh, and that was that was the um, uh, how we worked until '95. But the government at the time realized that Canada had so many um, kind of gaps and needs uh, economically, and the BDC uh, we need to be a complementary lender, so we're not out to undercut the banks based on uh, based on price. But there were so many gaps that needed to get filled that the, we shouldn't be limited to just um, those companies that can't get two loans from other banks. So that kind of opened the doors for. Uh, expanding um, uh, what we do to address other important needs for our economy. So it was from that basis that um, we became um, a, a kind of larger lender and we're still complementary, but there are lots of, lots of, you know, there's lots of really good companies that are new, that are, um, don't have a lot of assets, et cetera, that have great prospects, but for whatever set of reasons, um, still can't get the money they need from banks. Um, and we play a key role. That's why venture capitalism was born. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you <know>? exactly. <laughs> because, you know, most people in the beginning of when I became a venture capitalist would come to me with two banks saying, no, they could have, they wouldn't lend to them. If, and, and so um, that's when venture capitalism was born and angel investing, yeah. um, you know, formed because that they, that we we weren't looking at them the same way. We were looking at potential more than we were looking at what they had right now. Well, exactly, exactly. So we're actually, so because of that opening, to your point, we're, we're actually, I think we're still Canada's largest venture capital investor. We have about two and a half or three billion uh, venture capital investments. That was, a, to your point, a pretty critically important gap for the country because we don't, if you look in the US, for example, they've got so many venture capital firms, so many massive pension plans that invest in VC. We don't. And uh, certainly back in the 2000s, there were very, very few institutions, um, they're angels, but institutions that could write significant checks to support these companies. Things have changed radically now. And the state of the venture capital landscape we can talk about later is uh, as good as it's, I think, ever been in Canada. But certainly there were some dark days in the 2000s where we were one of the only institutions able to um, um, and have the means to invest in these technology companies. And, and that must have been a lot of pressure because um, also it was so such a new space and there, it, it, it's quite high risk. Right. And for a large organization like that um, to take on um, some of that risk uh, is is not easy. Um, and also to justify it at the end, you've got larger loan losses. You've got, you know, when it comes to. Um, Looking at 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 the financials quarterly, let's face it, that's not that's not an easy thing to to quote bang on. <laughs> right, right. And venture capital is particularly important because every um every venture capital investment you tend to invest as part of a syndicate. There are other institutions, right. angels, or high net worth folks investing alongside you. So you need to be. Um, so we need to pursue our mandate and make sure that we are um, investing and supporting the right companies but do so in a way that actually crowds in rather than detracts uh, and turns away private sector investment. So if we're overpaying or if we have silly terms and conditions, um, it may lead to BDC investing in something, but without the four or five other participants, the investments just don't add up to enough. So we've got to make sure we advance the mandate, which is to help Canadian companies grow and succeed, but in a way that is um, kind of at market in order to get the other parts of the syndicate uh, coming together. Right. I like that term, crowds in. Yeah, it really does define um, what you guys do. So, what during your um, tenure, what have you seen, um, regardless of COVID? What are the most common challenges that startups and entrepreneurs face? 
other than the financial portion of things? So the, the hardest part is um, is getting going because there's a real, you know, there's a real chicken egg, right, in terms of your financing. Whereas lenders, let's put, put aside venture capital, let's talk about BDC or banks as lenders. When you lend, you need to um, um, lend in a business where um, there is some pre-existing equity that's come from somewhere, either a, a friend of the founder, the founder himself. And for a lot of people that are starting businesses for the first time, that chunk of equity is actually really hard to come across and really hard to secure. Um, but lenders, um, that's that's what we need to see. So there's a bit of a getting things going is actually hard. Uh, and then once you kind of get going and you're producing some 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 results and some momentum, um, the equity starts to build, uh, what you can borrow starts to build, and you have capacity to to do something. The second thing that we we see is um, the need to um, make sure that you're kind of getting into the market and iterating because a lot of folks are tempted to spend, uh, spend a lot of time kind of perfecting and polishing and cleaning, what have you. Um, but until you um, uh, are in the market, you have no idea whether what you come up with actually is going to succeed or not. So finding a way to test, to iterate, to improve, to get market traction is important. And then the third thing that we look for is, um, uh, is we encourage people to surround themselves with people who can help, um, not a formal board per se, um, but people you can turn to, mentors, advisors, you know, they kind of help you on kind of tax or cash cash planning or what have you. So that, um, uh, again, there's so many forks along the road and so many questions that come up. The more you have people that have some skin in the game and have an interest in seeing you succeed, the more you can get uh, kind of quick answers to these questions that come up. Yeah, I, I completely agree. After the, you know, the, the the finances portion of a business are never completely handled and always in the forefront. But once it's tackled, I guess, um, and you get started, I, I totally agree with you that people fall in love with their initial idea too often and don't consider feedback and consider the marketplace to continue to iterate and or they want to make it perfect and there's no such thing as a perfect product. Um, and I think in, in some industries and businesses more than not, like I would never come out with a beer on the market or a vodka on the market that wasn't 99% perfect because, you know, in food and beverage, a little bit different. Um, the stakes are a bit higher. And, and of course we have great regulatory um, environments in, especially in Canada, but for sure in North America to make sure that we do that, but it, it's got to be close, but that doesn't mean that after the fact we don't change the pricing. We don't change sometimes what the label looks like or even the name is or, or tweak, you know, uh, what's inside the bottle. But I, I do agree that everybody believes usually that what you start with is where you got to finish yeah. and or that you got to get it right before you start. And I think that that's impossible. And if anybody sees anybody's journey, notices that um, even the biggest brands, you know, Coca-Cola isn't the same, that it, ta- it doesn't taste the same or look the same today that it did 10 or 20 or, you know, um, decades and decades before mm-hmm. then. And that's for a reason because it, it changes uh, with its consumer. Right. And I think that's a scary part a scary part of owning a business for anybody and the other thing is and you and you and one of the reasons you've been so successful is um is this point which is you really 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 need to care about what you're doing because this is if you want to start a business and succeed it, it's far 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 from a part-time job right um, so i always encourage people before they start embark on something to make sure that something is something they feel like an affinity or passion for because you've got to convince people to buy from you. You've got to convince people to come work with you. You've got to convince people to lend you money and invest in your business. And unless, the, the, unless you have this passion from within for what you're doing, you can't project the enthusiasm you need to. You can't put in the hours you need to 
to um, get the business going. And um, so it's not an intellectual academic thing, kind of where's the best, um, uh, where's the best kind of cell in the matrix to focus. It needs to really come from within and something that you feel just really passionate and excited about doing and succeeding in. Very true. Very true. I always say uh, um, the best pitches are, you know, really a transfer of passion um, for the the person listening to really understand that passion that that entrepreneur has for that or that founder has uh, for that business or that idea. <laughs> so talk to me about the challenges that you guys face um, kind of uh, talking to small business owners and startups about what you can do for them and that you're here even for them and how unique you guys actually are um, and that you're not a big bank. Right. No, good, good. In the definition of what we think of RBC and Scotia. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just talk because lending and investing are a bit different. So I'll just start with lending. If you want to go to investing, we can, we can go there as well. We um, do take um, more risk than the banks. And um, typically it's about three or four times the level of risk they take. And our, our prices reflect that. The average price of a BDC loan, given the risk, will be higher than the average price of an RBC or CIBC loan. Right. Um, so, but what the, the issue we tend to have with um, the companies we're talking to uh, is twofold. One, um, we do want to lend to companies that, even though they're high risk, are creditworthy, that they have an mm-hmm. asset base or they have um, a financial forecast um, or a way to communicate the fact that they are going to become, um, uh, are going to be viable and successful over time. And one of the uh, issues we tend to have with a lot of companies that approach us is, is kind of creditworthiness, where the, the type of, of demonstration we look to see around their plans is just more. Um, kind of more detailed than they tend to pull together. So that often leads to a, um, a discussion of kind of more work to get on the same page around um, creditworthiness. But second, um, and this is something we've been focused on, is there are a lot of, of kind of segments or demographics in the country that are just um, much less inclined to approach any bank, not just not BDC, but any bank. And we put in place um, a number of special programs for women entrepreneurs, um, we've just announced some programs for Black entrepreneurs. Right, $100 million. $100 million. Well, that's right. Yep. And then we're, sign- we're signing a deal with the, um, um, uh, 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 the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation to get more credit flowing to Indigenous entrepreneurs. Because we do find that um, uh, even with all of our advertising and social media and outreach, we're just mm-hmm. not getting enough um, conversations started with entrepreneurs in these, in these groups. So yeah. we're working with our partners that are actually better connected to these entrepreneurs than we are, um, putting money in the hands of these partners like NACA to uh, connect with the uh, with the company. So we're trying to just just eliminate some of the um, some of the impediments and some of the the barriers that prevent even this first conversation from taking place. Because for whatever set of reasons, even BDC, um, a lot of these entrepreneurs just um, um, find us inaccessible, distant, remote, what have you, and we're trying to cut through all that. I love that you're acknowledging that there is a gap, mm-hmm. you know, with lending or investing or both with women entrepreneurs, with Black founders or entrepreneurs, Indigenous, because I think that too many um, organizations want to put everybody together and and talk about equality amongst them all. And sure, that's great in an ideal world. However, when we look at the numbers, they are funded much less than, you know, everybody else. And I think that it is important to to often get take them out of the big box to say we're going to focus specifically on on them uh, and and that we're going to do it a little bit differently because their needs are are different 
um, and or we need to come to where they are going to, to be or what they're looking for. Um, and I think that that's really important, you know, in, in, in financing and banking in general, the, the notion that everybody deals with their financial literacy or their investing or their lending or just, just anything to do with dollars and cents is the same across the board is, is really not the case. I do it very differently than my brother. And I would say we were born and raised the same way, educated the same way. We work in the same company. The way we look at, at, at money is very different. And I think that that is... Um, some of it, I would say, is nature, but some of it is nurture. It, it goes both ways. And I think some is because I'm a woman. I look at it very differently. And I think to acknowledge that is important. And the lack of that is igno- not acknowledging who I am as a, a, a female founder also. I think that not everybody is brave enough to acknowledge that. And, and I like that more and more um, organizations are doing that. And what we learned, you know, on that point, we, um, we've been focused on women entrepreneurs for a while. When I started, a lot of our efforts were around at the point of the interaction with, at, at the point that the um, woman entrepreneur is talking to us about a loan uh, around the, the, the kind of the, the conversation to have, et cetera. But um, again, the issues uh, upstream of that. Uh, and a lot of, um, and since you, you just statistically, you find that um, women are more likely to be leading um, service-oriented businesses with fewer assets, et cetera, um, there's a disinclination on their part to think they are quote-unquote creditworthy so they don't approach their bank. So we've been working with women, not in the context of a specific financing request, but in the context, to your point, of financial literacy, et cetera, to help them um, kind of think about how um, uh, equity and um, debt could help them accelerate the growth of their business. And um, right. and, it's, and it's a bit of a, it's one of those things where it kind of takes a village, right? But there's so many terrific groups that have really stepped up over the past few years. The other banks, um, uh, the WEOC group of women's entrepreneurship centers across the country, um, many others to um, kind of work together to help. Um, and it's particularly needed now because as you well know, the um, this pandemic has been um, uh, particularly challenging for women entrepreneurs um, for kind of family and household reasons, but also because they, again, statistically, the services business that they lead um, were hit hard with um, social distancing and confinement, what have you. And um, some of the average numbers we look at can be encouraging, but you kind of double click on some of these more detailed numbers. That's a real cause for concern. And it's something we all need to um, put our minds to as we um, start to recover from the, the effects of the past year. And so when you're looking um, to provide financial help um, and guidance, what are the specific factors BDC looks for? So we would look for, um, uh, again, so let's assume we're, this is um, a, lend, a lending situation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We'd look for, um, uh, again, the credit worthiness of the company. So what are the cash flow projections look like? What's the optimism around those? Um, do they have any, any uh, intellectual property or physical security they can use to support the loan? Um, uh, second, we'd look for, um, and this is, for me, this is particularly important, the actual person we're lending the money to. Because as you as you said, it's um, you said on Dragons. Then you're really you're you're really trying to connect with the passion that person projects, right. uh, and that's um, that's very important. So we spend a lot of time getting to know the individual that we're discussing the loan with to really just see their the passion, their resilience, their character, and can they move the business uh, forward? Uh, and then the third would just be the um, uh, just the, an understanding of. Uh, what is it they offer? How does that offer um, um, kind of do in the market? Does that lead confidence vis-a-vis the financial projections, et cetera? 
Um, but um, and then for our smaller loans, um, which we try to do uh, up to hundred thousand dollars, we have an online lending platform uh, where again it's all digital. Um, that really boils down to the um, uh, individual's track record. If the individual has a solid track record and a legitimate plan. Um, we're able to um, lend them up to hundred thousand um, dollars. Frankly, in a couple of days, it's pretty quick. Yeah, that is pretty quick. Um, so do you see any um, strengths in, or even differences in today's entrepreneur rather than previous generations that you guys are either investing in or lending to? The one thing that I, I think is different, I'm not sure this is necessarily better, but it's a pronounced difference, is that there are many more entrepreneurs now than before that when they start their business, um, think global from day one. Uh, and this is obviously more relevant in the technology sector. Um, but that, I think, is really um, encouraging because Canada is, is a relatively small country. And if you start your business kind of thinking globally, the markets you have access to are just going to be huge. And that's why you have so many of these companies that are scaling up so rapidly. Uh, they're just selling into kind of massive markets. Um, so that's a big difference. And uh, I don't know if that's better or worse. I think the world's changed to enable this type of uh, orientation. But it is a big difference versus um, even 10, 15 years ago. And I think that it would be an advantage because I do think that um, the the founder of the entrepreneur's mindset is not just their immediate community and their geographical area. Um, That is their consumer base, that literally the world is their oyster um, in that whether it be a product or a technology, in that it's easier to get it to a consumer. It's um, sure there's more competition when you're competing with everybody globally, but also there is, um, you, you know, we hear this all the time in the 10, if I could get 1%, but if you could get 1% of the world's population rather than 1% of your city, it of course adds up to a lot more. And I think that um, the reach and is definitely different, but also that is a mindset. Um, I agree with yeah. you uh, that I think is is a good thing. I never thought of that when I started either. I thought, you know, 21 years ago that Alberta was going to be where first, ca- uh, you know, Calgary, but Alberta was going to be where I was going to sell spirits and beer. I, I never really thought, never mind the rest of the country, but then, you know, the US and then where we are in 16 countries around the world. But um, it was never something that I ever imagined. I, I only originally thought that I would sell my parents three liquor right. stores. Not never mind all of Alberta. So I think that when I when I speak to founders and and hear their stories of what their dreams and goals are, it's it's actually refreshing that they're much larger than mine were to begin with. Sometimes you have to bring them down to reality a bit, which is okay. Right, but I right. think that that it, it's nice to 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 have those bigger aspirations and those goals. No, the difference, yeah. that, that, the difference that I know you can relate to is, and this is particularly pronounced with the. Um, Millennials, for lack of a better word, is you do find there are more companies that are explicitly purpose-driven now than before. Um, and um, there's a term called a B Corp, beneficial corporation. Uh, we're one. Um, there are uh, many in Canada, but these are companies that have, uh, like by their legal statute, their, their raison d'etre uh, is not just to kind of make money and perform for shareholders, um, but it is balanced to support the needs of all stakeholders. Um, and these companies are very good at the hiring practices. Um, they're very good in terms of the quality of their ingredients. Uh, they're very good in terms of their environmental footprint and recycle. Um, and the values that these companies live reflect the values of their founders and um, uh, entrepreneurial owners, um, which are, again, really 
particularly pronounced in this generation of Canadians. I'm surprised to hear that BDC is a B Corp. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me why you guys pursued that. Well, two reasons. One, we thought it was important um, uh, in and of itself, uh, and for us, because we are we are fundamentally a mandate-driven financial institution. Um, we knew we would be um, um, uh, in the hunt, if you will, to uh, uh, earn the qualification and certification. But the, the more important reason we did was to basically lead the charge and kind of carry the flag for the B Corp movement in Canada uh, with others. But we just thought it would be helpful to have a large organization as a B Corp. Um, we can convene networks and um, support these companies through lending. And we use the term kind of B Corp or B Corp-like because the certification can be heavy for some companies. But companies that are fundamentally kind of purpose-based and values-driven, uh, we think Canada needs more of. So we're really happy to be um, kind of cheerleader in chief and um, uh, active supporter of the movement. And to be credible, uh, you need to be certified. Good for you guys. Yeah, good to know. Um, so talk to me, what do you think entrepreneurs should do before they seek investors or financial guidance? Um, a few things. One, uh, again, I think they do need to have um, a uh, an anchor of uh, uh, equity that either they're putting into the business or friends and family are, or angels uh, or someone that a demonstration of confidence and some some solidity to their balance sheet. Um, and then, uh, and then I think as long as and then the, the longer you take to get uh, additional money. Uh, typically, the better it is because the um, you'll be able to demonstrate more. You'll be seen as 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 better. You'll be able to attract higher valuation. So, we encourage companies to bootstrap themselves to get to the point that they have some momentum to demonstrate, and then at that point, um, uh, begin to look at sources of of, of, of capital. For uh, especially for tech companies, the the way to start probably is through equity and um, angel investors. And uh, there are a number, there are dozens of very early stage, kind of what the term is seed or pre-seed VC investors in Canada as a way to start. And what's interesting is when you get these investors, especially angels uh, investing in your company, you don't just get their money, you get their time and their expertise in the networks. And it's almost um, uh, real-time coaching you get from these, these folks, as you well know. Um, so making sure that you, when you start, you really think hard about what you need in your investors you don't just take the first check that comes your way. Um, and this is what the folks go through in, Drag in Dragon's Den, right? They're trying to select often from many, yeah. Uh, and that's a very, um, very real example of how you need to sort through your financial options. I, I totally agree. And because I, we do find that it's a turnoff sometimes when, when they come in and they don't know each of our expertise or don't know why they want us. They just want you know, $200,000. And, and that's not good enough because like you say, um, you know, the, it, it can come as a package deal and that's good and bad. And you have to know what, uh, what comes along with the check often. Um, and to be able to take advantage of that, I think is really important. So that's all the questions that I had um, for you. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, just that I just encourage your, um, your, your listeners to, um, to stay resilient. Uh, I know a lot of us have been uh, really hard hit and there's been a whole lot of programming and support that um, has been put out there, which has helped. But at the end of the day, a lot of these businesses haven't really been able to function as they like to function for over 12 months. Uh, but we are going to get through this. Um, what we've seen is when um, the confinement measures are relaxed, 
things do snap back and they snap back very quickly. So hang tough, be patient, be resilient. Um, um, things look, look promising right now in terms of the direction we're headed. And um, just fingers crossed, we end up um, in back to um, something that resembles normality before the end of the calendar year. And these entrepreneurs that haven't under such pressure um, can open the doors again and uh, get back to what they're so good at. Um, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Um, and like I said, hope to see you soon. Thanks for the opportunity. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts. It truly helps the show. If you want to hear more episodes like this one, make sure to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Magic Minhas Podcast. Cheers.